0: You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Let me just pray for our time, just to pause for a moment and pray, ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and we'll get into the word. Lord we thank you for your generosity to us in Christ uh, we we thank you also Lord for the reminder of having a day each week set aside to worship you um, by your order of, of your sovereign grace you have created the universe so that we have in our solar system so we have seven days uh, a week and and you have set it aside that we remember one of those days. And we need remembrance. We need to be reminded of your generosity. We get overwhelmed sometimes with hassles and busyness and burdens and, and fears and anxieties and, and just sometimes just plain busyness doing good things that we often drift and forget about your generosity to us. I pray, Lord, that that wouldn't be the case that even today as we gather and we look at what your word says about prayer that you would work in us, that you would ignite in us, all of us, individually, as families, and as a body of Red Sea, a desire not only to pray, but to pray biblically in a way that is honoring to you and is effective in achieving your purpose in our lives and in our community. So Lord, we we move forward in this time, not passively, just because I'm speaking, but all of us with, uh, I pray your Holy Spirit will create in us an eager expectation to hear from you And to experience your grace and your word in a powerful way. We thank you for it. In your precious and glorious name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to begin a series that we're going to do for the next few weeks on prayer. And I'm going to venture to guess that I'm not too unusual among uh, those of us sitting here today that have struggled with prayer. In one way, it should be a no-brainer, right? You just talk to God. Uh, he's everywhere all the time. He's always attentive. So it shouldn't be that difficult for us to pray and pray effectively uh, to, to the God who wants to answer, to, answer us. And, um, and, but I have, from time to time, evaluated my praying, evaluated what I do in prayer. And, and I, have, I have been sometimes disappointed, I guess, guess that's the best word, frustrated with myself and my praying. I find as I evaluate myself, I often do what I call checklist prayers. I have a checklist. Okay, bless my wife, bless the kids, bless the church. Let's see, I got everything. Check, 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 done. Time to go. Anybody else pray like that? Okay, checklist prayers. The other thing I find myself doing is what I call fix-it prayers. Fix-it prayers. Lord, fix this. Okay, it's broken. It's not working the way I would like it to happen, whether it's an event or, or finances or some other person. Lord, fix them, and we're good to go. Anybody else pray like that? okay? How, the other one I do that if I'm really thinking ahead, I, I, I pray what I call avoidance prayers. See, so in fix-it prayers, I'm already bothered, okay, by whatever it is. In avoidance prayers, I'm praying, I'm thinking ahead and saying, Lord, I don't want to be inconvenienced or discomforted, so I would like you to create a situation so I can avoid that. Anybody else pray to avoid life situations, I find myself often praying those ways and then getting frustrated because I know it's not the way the, the Father desires us to pray. And often I find myself trying to convince God to do the things that I think He's reluctant to do. And, and sometimes as I pray, I think and I say, okay, this is sort of the scenario that I have. The sequence of events is that um, we have a problem, and, but for, to some degree we can't quite handle it, so we decide to pray. So we pray, and we do all the talking and so god apparently listens at least we hope he does right we don't we're not quite sure when we're praying and when we wait around then after we prayed waiting for god if he wants to to answer our prayers so we wait and either god does answer it so that we know or he doesn't answer it and then after that we say well i'm not quite got the answer i want so i'm going to try again and we start over the cycle over again again Maybe that's oversimplification, but that's part of the frustration I have of thinking of it. And sometimes I feel like praying is like throwing dice. Anybody else? You just sort of like, I'm not sure what's going to happen, so I'm just going to throw it out there. And if the numbers come up great, woo, good to go. If not, okay, I'll just have to roll again later. Okay. And uh, some of you probably shoot, shoot uh, dice prayers like that, or future. My life from the next moment on is some kind of mystical fog and I can't see past the next minute, so I'm wondering what's going to happen and, and God, I can't see the clearly, so I'm going to ask you to somehow navigate that fog. Again, there's an unsurety and that makes me apprehensive to pray. Unfortunately, what has happened is this is, has consequences as my view of God. As I have really thought about this kind of praying, when I think about it, it really has affected my attitude towards God. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think God is, I, I treat him, I speak to him as if he's moody. You know, he might be in a good mood, he might be in a bad mood. I'll have to take my chances. Or I, I pray and, and that God's unpredictable. Last week he answered, this week he might not. That's the way it's going to go. Or maybe he's reluctant. Or maybe God is preoccupied with more important things than, than our requests. And and as I thought about that, I know that's not the God that we pray to, but yet the way I pray and the interaction with prayer sometimes guides those things. And one of the biggest problems recently that as I've evaluated my prayer time is I have uh, a prayer, what I call narrow prayers. And what I mean by narrow is they're usually very narrow in scope and very narrow in time frame. In other words, I find myself praying today for what I need today. And I'm not really thinking any bigger picture. I, what is the pressures I'm feeling right now? And that gets my attention. And that unfortunately, again, guides the way I pray, what I pray for, and how I pray. One of the things that I have learned and I am continually relearning is that sometimes in the shallowness of prayer, the short-sightedness of prayer, we lose, we lose the impact of prayer because we don't keep God's big picture in mind. We don't keep the, the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world in mind. If we look back at the Gospel, we talk a lot about the Gospel at Red Sea, and we can summarize it. There's a lot of ways of summarizing it. But the overarching picture of the Bible is we can say in four words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created the world good and physical, and and a lot of things happening that are really good. And then we know that Adam sinned and introduced sin into the world. And that's the fall. And since sin came into the world, human interaction has always been breeds, sin always breeds alienation and corruption. We always are in, in conflict in relationships, and we always are, things are getting broken. Things are dysfunctional in our life, and whether it's our jobs or the way we interact with each other, or just finances, everything, sin brings those kind of things. But God, knowing that, even before he created the world, created a plan of we call redemption, that he even, from Genesis 3, he said, I'm going to fix this problem. And he foretold that Christ was going to come and die for our sins. We have the history of the Bible. It all leads up to a central point where the birth of Christ, the Son of God, became man. He lived, he taught, he was crucified for our sins, his body was raised from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. That is the gospel message that Christ died for our sins. But the gospel doesn't stop there. That's where we're at now. We live on that side of the cross. But the gospel message doesn't stop there. There's also the full restoration. And that is at some point Christ is going to return. And and he's going to re-put, He's going to recreate the world. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to even be better than it was when he originally created it. So that's the big picture. Now why am I going through all that? What has that got to do with prayer? Are we supposed to pray the whole Bible? Well actually, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to keep in mind the things of the Bible. This whole flow of the gospel is the flow of history. It's the flow of our culture. And it's the flow of your and my life. It's a flow of Red Sea. We were created. We have sin. There's redemption. And we will be one day restored. That is the flow of everything in our lives, and it's heading that direction. And the overarching story of the Bible is about God's work of creation and recreation through the salvation that came through Jesus Christ. And the whole Bible is pointing that way. And every detail of our lives, here and now, is part of that flow, part of that story. And Christians recognize this when they pray. Christians don't pray outside the big picture of what God is doing in the gospel. We often did. The struggles that I've had in prayer is when I have isolated my thinking and my attitude away from the gospel, focused on my situation now, and did not stop and think about the big picture. If we study prayer in the Bible and God's intention is we pray in light of the story that's already being written out and that we're a part of. We get to join God in that. And one of the most amazing things of the gospel, at least it is to me, is that God not only is saving the world, but he chooses to use those he saves to save the rest of the world. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that God is recon- in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. God is working to overcome sin in people's lives and bringing them to himself. And then Paul goes on after he says that and says, and he has uh, given us the ministry of reconciliation and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. God is doing the work, he's bringing it to himself, but God in his sovereign wisdom has chosen to use us, the very sinners that he saves, as the tools to save the people in the world. Matt, to me, I don't know about you guys, but I find that remarkable. He he doesn't have to do it that way, but he chose, has always chose to use the very people that he extends grace to to extend grace to other people. And to bring glory to Him. And the more we conform to that, the more glory He gets. Now why is this important in prayer? It's important because having revealed His purpose in the gospel, God graciously allo- excuse me, allows us, His dear children, to be involved in carrying out His will. To put it another way, He gives us the privilege of identifying with His will by asking Him to do what He has already determined to do. The gospel message, the train of history, is already determined. He's asked us to join him in that, and one of the primary venues we join him in that is through our prayers. When we pray, we are extending the kingdom of God, we are advancing the gospel, we are articulating the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Prayer is not trying to persuade God to do something that he otherwise would not do. That's the way I often pray. Praying is not trying to convince God to do something He he would otherwise not do. Praying is intentionally engaging with God to accomplish what He is already determined to do. We're going to pray in light of what God has already determined that He's going to do. And we know what that is by the Gospel message of the Bible. We're going to look at today, very briefly, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. This is one place it's actually in two places in the Bible, Matthew and Luke. We're going to look at Matthews. And it's where, the, where Jesus teaches explicitly on prayer. And in the Luke passage, his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives them the Lord's prayer. So we're going to look at that. If you can just stand with me for a minute, we're going to read that. I'm going to read it to you. It is found in Matthew chapter 6. Um, it's not in your flyer. Um, it's in Matthew. If you have a Bible or you have your phone or your iPad, whatever you, you use, we have it's in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In the Lord's Prayer, we get a framework for prayer. It's a structure for prayer. It's not an exhaustive list of what we can pray for. We know we can pray for a lot of other things. But Jesus has given us some, some uh, a framework, a structure in which we can pray. And, um, and He begins with an address. Who is He speaking to? And then He gives, we're going to look at five requests. Five, what we call in, in prayer language, petitions. He's asking something. Uh, he says to ask the Father something. And again, this is—I well, want to just reiterate that—as we look through the Lord's Prayer, that we, this is unfortunate. That's no, not unfortunate. It is very common, especially if you have a, relig- a background in a church setting, that this was recited often. I was raised in a, a background where this was recited almost weekly, and it's very quickly to mentally disengage in the Lord's Prayer and just say, "Oh, it's quick, check, 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 check," and not really stop and think about the depth that's there. We could spend weeks on each line. We're not going to. We're going to spend one message on the whole thing. So we're going to move fairly quickly. And in this, in this thing, so prayer is not trying to persuade God to do something that he otherwise would not do. Prayer is being caught up in the purposes of God and then expressing these, this privilege as his children to a father. So let's look at verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Our Father in heaven. This is the address. This is who we're supposed to talk to, the Father in heaven. We are to address God as our Father. He has revealed Himself in His Scripture as Father, uh, the Eternal Father. We're told in in John's Gospel, in John 1, that, um, that those who believe in Christ are born again and they have the right to become children of God. Those who have faith in Christ are called children of God, and they are adopted and, are, and call God Father. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because they are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into their hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Those who have, have faith in Christ, have seen the generosity that the Father has had to us in Christ, are adopted as sons, they have the inheritance, they have the full rights as sons of God, just as much as Christ does, and they, and they respond, and their natural inclination of their hearts is because, they, because we should be overwhelmed with God's generosity, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. We call him, in essence, Daddy. Daddy. And he's, it's a term of intimacy. It's a term of closeness. It's a term of fondness. He is, God is the perfect Father. In, in, despite all the frailties and mess ups and corruption of earthly fathers, which we've got to sometimes overcome, God is the perfect Father. He cares for us, He nurtures, protects, and guides us. And He gives us the Bible tells us that God, as a Father, always gives us good things, He doesn't give us bad things. Now, unfortunately, when we pray, we may pray for candy, and God chooses to give us Brussels sprouts. But it's always a good thing for us. But He says we're in one sense we always pray to God, our Father. There's a closeness, there's an intimacy there. But notice the the description of Him as Father. He's God, our Father in heaven in heaven why does he say that in heaven well it is he's referring to god who is in the theological term transcendent he's completely different than his creation creation he is the creator sustainer the loving father that we pray to is the all-knowing and all-powerful sovereign lord of the universe it's not just a wimpy guy who cares for us but he's also the god who creates and can do all things that he determines He's going to get things done because He has the power to do it. That's who we address in this. We have assurance. We have, we have trust. We have confidence in God because not only does He extend His love to us in Christ and we can call Him Father, but He's also the Sovereign Lord that can do and will do everything according to His will and get it done. That's who we pray to, and that's who God he wants us to remind us to. Notice the next thing in there. Now we That's who we address, but the first petition. The first petition, the first of five. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Hallowed be Thy name. It's not hallowed is not a word we use very often. Okay, where do we use the word hallow ironically? Halloween. Halloween, okay, which is not what was supposed to be about. Halloween is the day before what day? Does anybody know November first? All Saints Day, which was supposed to be the hallow holy day, but the Halloween crept up. Now where is that? We don't even know about All Saints Day, but we know about Halloween. A little cultural irony there of of the way it's not supposed to be. But hollow means to be holy, to, to set apart is perfect and sinless. Not to set apart. It's either to make holy or to honor as holy, and that's the case here. Now, in these requests, these petitions, I'm, when we look at these petitions, the, the, the danger is we just think this is something we ask God. Okay? But if we really take the time to unpack these petitions, when we make we we pray to God, it carries all of these five petitions carry with it three parts. Okay, one of it is it's a declaration of truth. This is true in the statement. It's also an expression of 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 desire. We want in our heart, we desire this to be true, and then it's also as a petition a request for action, God. Do something about this. So a prayer isn't simply just go do something, but when we pray biblically, we think about what is true, we express, the, we proclaim, we, we say, state the truth, then we, we come to our heart and say, what's the desire that we're expressing, and then in light of that, we give the request for God to act. Does that make sense? Let's look at this. And, we can, and I'm just going to give some simple examples. I'm not going to give you the only way of saying it, but as I thought through this, what would some things, if I'm going to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, what would be a declaration of truth? That, First of all, God, your name is holy indeed. It is holy. You are holy. It's a truth. It's a fact. And also I think of revelations. When I thought of this, I thought of revelations. It said, uh, where the angels and the, and the creatures in heaven in Revelation say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's a, that's a, that's a declaration of truth. But well, An expression of desire it might be something like, Oh, that your name would be recognized as holy in the world, in my life, and maybe in this particular situation that I'm praying for. Lord, I desire that you be recognized as holy. And then there's a call to action, there's a call. in light of those two things: Lord, bring glory to your name. Lord, in this situation, in my life, in our church, whatever it is we may be specifically praying for, Lord, may you be glorified in this. And, and Lord, do you do what you need to do in this situation to receive the glory and be recognized as holy. It's like this first petition establishes the priority of praying. God first. It's like the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. When we pray, our first and greatest prayer is that God be recognized as holy, and we express it like that. Paul said, so whatever you eat, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. What we're going to do now is we're going to do things a little bit different today. Is No, the sermon's not over. Okay. I did not set a Royce record for the brief, my briefest sermon. No. Okay. We're about 10% away through. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. What we're going to do, though, as we talked about this as elders and with the worship team, we decided what we need to do is we can't just talk about prayer. Okay. We need to pray. Right? Wouldn't it make sense? Okay. Don't worry. We're not going to put anybody on the spot. But what we're going to do now is I'm going to remind you of what he said and then and then I'm going to give just some, a moment, a couple moments of silence that you, in light of this passage, pray that. Whatever comes to mind. And then the worship team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. And then, and then I'm going to come back up and I'm going to share two more requests. And then we're going to pray, sing. And then I'm going to come back up and share the last two requests. And we're going to pray and sing. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is the verse we want you to focus on. Our Father in heaven hallowed holy be your name and as you think about this i want to remind you as you think maybe you gravitate to one of these areas or not or all three declare what is true express your desire in respect to that or call or request god for action for God to make action okay let's spend a minute to pray and then when you hear the music you can look back up or you can be looking up anyways i don't care and then we will um worship and we'll continue in the word The second petition that the Lord teaches us to pray is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom, biblically kingdom, speaks of the rule of God and the realm of which he rules. Jesus began his ministry, according to Matthew, when he, as an adult, began his ministry. He began with the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is breaking into the world, into our existence and humanity in a new way. And God's rule and realm is a way it's never been before in Christ Jesus. And the only response Jesus is saying is repentance and faith. And that is part of the gospel message. Paul tells us in Colossians that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. That, that kingdom of God is directly part of and is a way of expressing the gospel. The gospel message of Christ. Now there's two things inevitably a part of the kingdom of God that we need to keep in mind. And those are, first of all, that it's, the kingdom always is bringing, God's work in the kingdom is bringing the salvation of God's people. But it also it brings judgment to, the, to those who reject Him as king. There is a judgment that is coming, and all of us, everybody who ever lives, will face that judgment. The difference being that those who are in Christ and are looked on with Christ's righteousness will be declared just and, and, and acquitted. And those who are not, have not expressed faith in Christ, have not returned to uh, come to the gospel, uh, will not. There's also another aspect theologically you may hear, you may have heard the term, already not yet. And, and the way this Bible scholars and preachers talk about the kingdom of God, it's already here, but it's not yet complete. It's already making its mark. It's already making its move. And Jesus told many parables about the kingdom of God as it already is working and growing. But yet we know it's not yet complete. And it's those kind of things that we need to keep in mind when we talk about and pray for God's kingdom is that it's already here, but not Yet. And so we think about the kingdom part of this as a declaration of truth and, and, uh, and the expression of desire and the request for action. So as we think of the line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Specifically, your kingdom come. It is a declaration of truth. Lord, your eternal kingdom is here and it's real. Lord, your, your word says that you work all things to the counsel of your will. And the desire, expression of desire, those are true. The expression of desire, may your kingdom expand in my community and may your kingdom expand in its influence in my life. And um, expression, as as our Heavenly Father and Eternal King, may we have confidence that your will for us is good and perfect. But that line also is a call to action. God, Sovereign Lord, expand your kingdom's rule and reign through Your Gospel. Lord, may you, enable, may, you enable us, may you enable Your will to be accomplished in us and through us. And again, what we're trying to say is that we are praying along the lines of God's will and God's expressed purpose in the Scriptures. And He says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth. I think He's, he's saying the same thing. If the kingdom's coming and expanding, it's also correlated, part of that is that His will will be done. Now, when I think about this, and I've studied this and thought about it in my own life and prayed this, uh, what, what it is is when we say your will be done, it's not just a fond wish. It is not a magical manipulation of supernatural forces. It is not just the mysterious and secret orchestration of events which we may or may not be aware of. When we think of the will of God, it's some mystical force sometime, but we just don't know what it is. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the will of God that he's talking about. It is a humble trust in the promises of God. It is a declaration that God's purposes cannot be opposed successfully and cannot be stopped. That's what we mean when we pray for it. And it's interesting, This recently as I was studying the Lord's Prayer over the past few weeks, one of the things that, that sort of caught me off guard is my misconception that I have been praying for many years, on what it meant for the Lord's will to be done. The part there, done, is the emphasis. Um, my mix- misconception that I struggled with is that I felt like if I prayed for the God's will to be done, that we, we, when we pray that, we're just passive bystanders waiting for God to accomplish His will. That He's got something planned. He's going to get her done. We just got to stop and wait and let Him, let him do it. We, we just sit back and wait for God to do what He needs to do. done. His will be done. And yet, as I've learned recently, that that's not what the Lord was saying by that sentence. In discussing this particular petition, C.S. Lewis, the well-known author, says, says this. He emphasizes that when he was studying this and he was thinking about this, he, what his attention was drawn to is, your will be done. The doing of God's will. What is that? And C.S. Lewis says, "The petition then is not merely that I am patiently suff- that I may patiently suffer God's will, but also that I may vigorously do it. I must be an agent as well as a patient." What C.S. Lewis is saying, and what this is, that we're saying, is this petition that "Your kingdom come, Your will be done," is a petition that leaves room for our involvement in answering our own prayer. When we pray this prayer, we commit ourselves to taking responsibility for action. This prayer commits us to personal obedience to God's will as we understand it. When we pray, Thy, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, we are saying, Lord, we, we would like to know Your will, and we are committed to doing and obeying that will. I, didn't, I had not prayed it that way. I had always for years prayed it passively. Get her done, God. Let me know how it goes. And now God's saying, okay, Royce, maybe it hasn't been going very well because you need to be getting her done. And is this really accurate? Is this out of nowhere? Well, we could look at numerous passages. Just look a couple chapters later. Paul says, in, I mean, excuse me, Jesus said, the Sermon on the Mount that this prayer is in, Jesus had a long teaching, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7. This prayer is in the middle in chapter 6. He ends chapter 7 after he says all the things he says, including this prayer. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on and tells the story, or tells the parable of building your house on the rock and sand. That that the the people who respond and obey the Word, build their house on the rock. Those who do not obey the Word, do not do the Word of God, the will of God, uh, will build their house in sand and it will fall with a great crash. So Jesus is saying that that knowing the will of God is something that we should do, not only know, but we can do it. That's, That's how he concludes Three chapters of his sermon. In Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We, we can understand it. He says, don't be foolish, understand it. Later, Paul tells us to, Paul tells us to, um, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So as we think, and the gospel changes our minds, we do know, what the will of God is and when we pray thy will be done we know what we're praying for we know what God's will is through the gospel and there's other passages now mainly how do we know let's just be clear here how do we know what God's will is we often think the will of God is a secret mystical aspect and there are some things that the Lord is not going to tell us in Deuteronomy Moses said the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever God has revealed. Where do we know about God's revealed will? Where does he take the time to tell us what it is? Somebody tell me. In the Bible, in the Scripture, in the Word of God. We, we don't have to guess what God's will is when we pray. We know what it is because he took the time, effort, and to write it down. And we can read it, and we can study it, and we can know it. In fact, that link between the Word of God and prayer is, is, is something that's so important. A little later in a few weeks, we're going to be telling you about a workshop we're going to be offering about how to take your Bibles and how to take passages of Scripture and turn them into prayers, how to pray your Bible. You want to pray the will of God? It's not that complicated. We take what He's told us in the Word and we repeat it back to Him as a prayer. You think God honors those kinds of prayers and is pleased with those kinds of prayers? Yes, he is. So we're going to be giving you, that's a skill, that's a, something that we're going to work on later. We didn't have time here. We're going to That's coming. But anyways, back to this, your will be done. And basically we're saying, Lord, enable us to do what we know we are supposed to do according to your revealed word. And it's interesting that in Colossians and Epaphras, we studied this back in the summer, uh, he talks about Epiphras, who is one of you who served Christ, greets you, always struggling in, in always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, he works hard at praying for them, that they may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. He's prayed for his fellow church people uh, that they would be fully assured of the will of God. Okay, that's, that's the second prayer. The third prayer, I mean the third petition. Verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Seems pretty straightforward. And for the most part, it is pretty straightforward. We sometimes forget, I forget often, that the, the gospel message isn't simply a spiritual message. It's not just a message for uh, our, our thoughts and our spiritual lives, but it involves real life. The, the, the Bible is, is about real, tangible living. It's not that there's the physical world that is evil and, and just mundane and plain, and that the spiritual world is what God really cares about. That's, that's not a biblical, that's Platonic, that's Plato came up with that. We, we uh, as Christians, believe the physical world, God created it, he created it good. It's corrupted by sin, but he created it good. There's Genesis, the creation of the world. Sin came and corrupted the physical world. The gospel, and, and Jesus became an incarnation. That's the fancy word is that God became man and was born in the physical world. Jesus was, walked, and ate, and slept. And, and did all the things that we as people do in the physical world. A sign of the gospel coming is physical healing for some people. Resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. His physical body was resurrected, and so will ours. We, we don't leave behind this. We, if we die now, it will rot for a while, but eventually our physical body and our spiritual aspect of us will be united forever. And in the consummation, in the end of the age, and when Christ returns, there's the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, this concept that we sit around in heaven in clouds playing the harp all the time, I, I really don't know where that came from, but it could be, couldn't be further from the truth. There's an earth. We're going to be on it with our physical bodies doing real things. Um, so the reason I go through all that is that, that the physicalness of our life, the gospel has something to say about that. The gospel has something to say about that. And it says, give us this day our daily bread. God is providing what we need. The, your very next breath is a gift from God. The food we eat, the, everything that is physical around us, is, is God's sovereign grace is what gives it to us. And we, we reference this. And, and in the Bible, give us this day our daily bread as has a, has a reference to manna in the Old Testament where Israel was wandering the desert for 40 years. And what did they eat in the desert for 40 years? Manna. Bread. A special kind of bread provided by God every day. They got that. So there's an allusion to that. But, and it's, it's about, and notice this, it says, This day, our daily bread. God, I have needs right now. I, I, I don't want to worry about too much in advance. I need it today. I'm not going to be anxious about tomorrow. I have enough problems with today. So give me grace for today. It's like in Proverbs 30. Uh, he's the writer of Proverbs says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not before I die. The first one is, remove far from me falsehood and lying. The second one is, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the, the, God, the author of Proverbs is saying, I don't want to be rich or poor, because either way, I might bring dishonor to God's holy name. Lord, feed me this day. Take care of my physical needs in this day for what I need. It is, it is okay and it's important that we do pray for those things. The finances and, the, and those kind of things. We have bills to pay. We have mouths to feed. We should pray, Lord, we need your provision for those things. It's also, though, that this illusion here, give us this day our daily bread, is more than simply the physical needs that we have. It is also the spiritual needs that we have. For Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on the very words that come from the mouth of God. Jesus himself, in John 6, calls himself the bread of life. After feeding of the 5,000 people, the crowd comes after him and they want more. They want more bread. Their stomachs physically were filled. They wanted more. And Jesus warned them, and he said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not, not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives you life to the world. He said. Then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So in requesting that God give us the bread, there is a spiritual dynamic that we have needs that our physical hunger, I think in God's sovereign wisdom, remind us of when we get hunger pains, we have spiritual needs that we also need satisfied. It's interesting that Jesus himself in the Lord's Supper, at, at, at the end of his life, in the Passover meal before he dies, uses a loaf of bread and, and a cup to signify the Lord's Supper. He says this, he takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and says, this represents my body, that is is broken for you. Take and eat of it. And we do it to this day. We still take bread and we break it and we eat of it, reminding of us of God's provision for us. And if God doesn't provide for us, it's not going to happen. So declaration of truth, expression of desire, request for action. Declaration of truth. God, you are the creator, sustainer of all things in the world. You are the great provider of all things, both physical, spiritual, and emotional and for our well-being. An expression of desire. Father, may I trust in your provision even when I don't see it. Request for action. Father, I have bills to pay. I have mouths to feed. Please provide what we need. Lord, and we can pray with wisdom what the Proverbs said, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed us the food we need. Otherwise, we may be full and deny you by saying, who is the Lord? Or we may be poor and steal and so profane your name. So let's take a a couple minutes and let's pray these two petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and then what is going to happen as we pray for minutes and and think about the declaration of truth expression of desire and a request for action when we sing the song that as in in a response to god and his provision for us and give us this day our daily bread we are going to take our offering as an act of worship back to god of, of reminding him that he's provided the, the finances we have we as an act of worship are repi- giving back the tithes as an act of worship. If you don't get it in the bucket, because we have one song, if you don't get your tithe in, there's a bucket on the back near the sound booth that you can put it on after the worship gathering. Let's pray for a minute and then respond in song. The fourth petition, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And a little later, actually a verse later, not the very next one, but in verses 14 and 15, Jesus continues. It's the only only, uh, line of the prayer that he actually offers additional explanation. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors sounds conditional, because it is conditional. And it makes us very uncomfortable, especially in a church that proclaims grace and 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 the gospel message to say that we're supposed to pray about forgiveness in a conditional way. But clearly, that's what Jesus is is saying here. A little later in Matthew, Jesus expands on forgiveness. He spends a lot of time in His ministry talking about forgiveness. And Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, He talks about a number of things, but one of the things He talks about is when people sin against you, this is how you're supposed to respond. To which that teaching, Peter... Says, well, when somebody sins against me, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to say, keep count. He was taking, as we'll see in a minute, he was taking a big number, comparing a little number and a big number to show what you think is really good, you're not even close, Peter. Okay? Jesus is saying, basically, you can't keep track. People are going to sin against you, you forgive. And then he goes on and expands and explains. In in Matthew 18, Jesus explains how can that be. And he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in the parable of the unforgiving servant, a servant who owes his master what is equivalent of millions and millions of dollars, something that he would never in a lifetime be able to pay, comes and begs for forgiveness, begs for mercy, and the the Master, out of pure grace and mercy, gives him, forgives him his debt, wipes it out, and and then lets the the servant go free. But that servant goes out, and he finds somebody who owes him ten bucks. And he grabs him, and it says he chokes him. He acts violently towards that person. And the other people see this. And he he demands that that guy pay him his ten bucks. And the guy can't do it. And he asks for mercy. And yet the servant who has just forgiven millions and millions of dollars refuses to give mercy to the guy who owes him ten bucks. The people around him see that, and they bring that guy back, and they tell the master. And the master is ripped. He's upset. Understandably so, isn't he not? Not? And the Master says to him this this question. He says, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? What's the answer to that question? Absolutely. When we struggle with giving forgiveness to other people, it's because we fail to appreciate and value the forgiveness that God has given to us in Christ. It is such a huge debt in God's eyes that He took care of every one of our sins and Christ died for it. That's such huge for us to turn around and refuse to offer forgiveness to those who hurt us and legitimately hurt us. He's not saying it's okay to hurt. That's sin. That's alienation and corruption. But to refuse to give forgiveness back means... Jesus is saying here and in Matthew 18 and Paul says otherwise if you refuse consistently to refuse to give forgiveness to other people you don't have forgiveness not because God took it away but because you never really understood what you got people who refuse to forgive Jesus is saying in this prayer and in Matthew 18 are people who really don't understand and never truly responded in repentance and faith to the forgiveness that God's given them. That's why that, that part of the Lord's Prayer is conditional. Forgive, forgive us as, as we have forgiven ours. How do we know God has forgiven us? Because we're willing to extend grace and mercy to those who hurt us. That's the sign that we've received grace and mercy back. Now, Paul tells us in that in Colossians, he says, He he talks about, we talked about this this summer, put off the sinful nature, put on what is in Christ, change the way we think because of the Gospel. And it's like clothing. We put off the sinful attitudes we have. We start thinking about the Gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. And then he says, put on new clothing, put on the things. And he describes that in Colossians 3. Put on then what is God's, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint in another, interestingly, as we grow mature in Christ, Paul's even saying, we're going to have complaints against each other. We're we're going to have arguments. We're going to have sin. But he's he's not glossing over that. He's saying, in our maturity, just recognize that. And then he goes on and says, forgiving one another, as in the Lord forgave you, so also you must forgive. If we, if we want to know what forgiveness looks like, we look at Christ on the cross and we know what God has done for us to give us forgiveness. When we pray, forgive us our debts as we, for, as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are, we are praying, Lord, extend to us because we've extended to others. We can bask more in the knowledge of how great and generous you are. And when we forgive and it's really hard to forgive, we learn a little bit more about how awesome God's forgiveness is to us. Because in our little bit of trouble, if we have that much trouble, how much did God have when He forgave us? Forgiveness is not easy. Do not hear a flippancy that forgiveness is easy. It's, it's very difficult at times. But one thing to remember is, how easy was it for God to forgive you? It wasn't very easy. Christ had to die to forgive you. God went to a lot of trouble and a lot of pain that we forever in eternity, we'll be celebrating His pain of forgiveness to us. It's costly to forgive. The difference is Christians can say that when we want justice, we want to extend forgiveness, we can because Christ died for not only our sins, but He died also for the other people's sins that we are forgiven. We extend to them what we have received. That's why Jesus has us in here. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is not, well, okay, I guess we'll be best friends now. No, it's not the same thing. The goal is to be reconciled ultimately. But sometimes in this life, we will not be close to the people who hurt us. We understand that. But we can forgive. We can let go of the anger. We can let go of the vengeance. We can let go of the bitterness that grips us because we refuse refuse to forgive. That's what Christ is talking about in this. The declaration of truth, the expression of devo- desire, the request for action. In the declaration of truth, Father, you have provided complete forgiveness to us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, because of the ultimate and eternal justice of is your business, not ours, we are able to experience freedom of forgiving other people. It's an expression of desire. Father, when we come aware of our sin, please remind us of Your generous forgiveness we have in Christ. Father, when people sin against us, please remind us of Your generous forgiveness we have and they have in Christ. A request for action. Father, we have sinned in thought, in deed, and in desire. Forgive us. Not because of our own merit, but only by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Father, we have been sinned against through belief in Your Word and by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Enable us to extend forgiveness to those who have harmed us. Again, the prayers that we pray involve us asking what God has already promised to those who believe in Him. The fifth and last petition. Verse thirteen, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some would translate that word evil to evil one. Uh, It could be either way; it doesn't make a difference. Evil and evil one, meaning Satan, go pretty well hand in hand. So we're good to go either way. But it's evil. Help us to to not to be tempted when we are. Get us out before we get crushed by that sin. We we will be tempted. This is the already not yet of the kingdom. It's in our lives too. We are already in the kingdom of God. We are already sons and call him Abba, Father. Those are all things that are true. We are already forgiven. But the not yet is we are not completely sanctified. We're not completely whole. The, the, The gospel hasn't finished its work in our lives. Therefore, we face temptations. We face trials. We face difficulties. We face spiritual battles. Jesus is recognizing that. Jesus is acknowledging that. He wants us to acknowledge that. And J, in the book of James, we saw just this fall, he says in chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, or God, for God cannot, tempt, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one of us is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is uh, conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And Paul in Corinthians says, No temptation has overtaken you that, cannot, that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the, with the temptation He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is aware of temptation. She doesn't cause it. It's our own sin. It's our own desires. It gets us into the mess in the first place. And the sin and desires of other people who sin against us. But that temptation is reality. We are to respond and do it. And Lord, when we face that temptation, we just hope we can avoid it. If we can't and we're stuck in the middle, Lord, we're acknowledging we need your deliverance to get us out. We need the gospel to change our hearts, our attitudes right now. What I find very interesting is when Jesus, when Jesus spoke this and Matthew recorded this thing, this, this exhortation, it's where he placed it in the prayer. He placed it at the end, but it's interesting that this petition is sandwiched between two things in forgiveness. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then Jesus comes back and explains forgiveness. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just say forgive and then give me, let me give you an explanation of forgiveness and then come back to the temptation and evil one? I think he's, he did it on purpose. Obviously he did it on purpose. He recorded it that way. And it's because I think one of the major reasons is, is that we, when we struggle with forgiveness and we have broken relationships, we are calling to attention that, that God, we are off gear. We have, we have swayed away from, we have drifted away from God's provision of the gospel. We have forgotten when we struggle with forgiveness. We're very susceptible at that time with anger and bitterness to do things that we should not do. Think things that we should not think. Desire things that are not right, not according to the gospel. Uh, much of our st- what Jesus is saying, much of our struggle with temptation and, and, and the evil one, is because of we're not applying the gospel to our lo- lives in the relational aspects we allow unforgiveness and bitterness and anger to well up in us and that is the most one of the most susceptible places we are for satan to attack us satan will attack at where we are vul- vulnerable and where we are the most vulnerable is unforgiveness is what jesus is trying to say Paul goes on in, in his letter to Ephesians. He goes, he ends it, he talks a lot about the gospel and how their lives are being transformed to the gospel. And at the end of it, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. That's the gospel. We, it's for now. The kingdom is here now. We have that strength now. Put on the whole armor of God and that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities and against cosmic powers um, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And then he goes on and talks about the armor, and at the end of that armor, using the analogy of armor, he says this: "And put on the take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication." How do we combat temptation and how do we combat the evil that's so prevalent around us? Well, Paul saying we, we be strong in the strength that's in provided to us in Christ. Take the Word of God, combine it with prayer, <clears throat> and pray very frequently. Pray the Word of God into our lives around us is a primary way we come against the spiritual forces of evil. Once again, prayer involves thinking God's thoughts after Him. And praying according to the purposes that God has already accomplished in Christ. In John 16, Jesus said, I have have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Jesus said, you will have trouble. Then he goes on and says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The answer to the troubles of life is back to the gospel. It's not separate from what Christ has done for us. Declaration of truth. Expression of desire, request for action. When we think of this line and we pray this, a declaration of truth, our our desires entice us away from God's generous provision for us in the gospel. It does, according to the word of God. Father, that same gospel is the means by which we gain freedom from the power of both sin and Satan. That's a statement of truth, but an expression of our desire. Father, we are, we are very aware of our tendency to drift away from You and Your provision in the Gospel. We are grieved by this. Father, may the wonder of Your riches for us in Christ captivate our hearts and minds. That should be a desire. Request for action. Keep us from shifting our focus away from Your priorities of provision and act in ways that do not honor You. Father, when you do find when we do find ourselves engulfed in temptation, please enable us to quickly flee to the gospel for the power to escape. I just want to summarize before we pray and sing. I just want to summarize what we, what the emphasis of the Lord's prayer is. The emphasis is He's given us very specific things, a specific things, a specific framework in which to pray. But praying is not trying to persuade God to do something that he otherwise is reluctant to do. That is not praying. Praying is intentionally engaging with God to accomplish what he has already determined to do. Having revealed his purpose in the gospel, God has graciously allows us and invited us as his dear children to be involved in his purposes through prayer. He gives us the privilege to identify with his will and asking him to do what he has already determined to do. John Piper wrote in a book um, called um, Let the Nations Be Glad, a paragraph that changed a number of years ago the way I prayed. I mentioned earlier I began with some of the struggles I've had with prayer over the years. I still struggle from time to time. And by God's grace, I learn as I read and study and, and, and practice prayer. I've learned more. I have a long way to go. But at least I've made some progress. But one thing, there's times when you read something and it just na- massively changes you. At least that is for, true for me. This is a paragraph that John Piper uh, uh, wrote a number of years ago. And when I read it, it changed the way I viewed why and how I pray. And it's along the lines of what we just said. Let me just read it to you. John Piper says, quote, and I've read this before. Uh, some of you may this might be familiar. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in this world prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of limitless provider the one who gives the power gets the glory Thus, prayer safeguards the supremacy of God in mission while, while linking us with the endless grace for every need. That is what prayer is about. And we at Red Sea in this coming year are going to be emphasizing more and more of that and calling people and inviting people into praying wartime prayers not some radical weirdo stuff, but just calling and sincerely saying, you know what, life is war. We're going to take it seriously and we're going to turn to God the provider and pray the way He has told us to pray according to the Gospel. So over and over again, over the years progresses, we're going to be inviting you in different ways, different times, sometimes in the gathering, sometimes outside the gathering, to pray with us. The elders have committed since last year to pray. We pray, we meet every week, Every other week, our total meeting is just that we pray together. The three of us pray together. That's it. No business, no talking. Well, we talk a little bit afterwards, okay? But we pray. We want to invite you more and more into that time of prayer. We have in, before us the communion. We've already alluded to that. In this whole prayer, we could take each one, and I was tempted earlier when I first started thinking about this, to tie each one of those lines of the Lord's Prayer to the communion table we could. We could. We declare the Lord's death until he comes. We remind ourselves of the gospel every week as an act of worship. If you are a believer here, you have responded to the gospel message that Christ died for your sins, and you responded in repentance in faith, we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper, to take communion as an act of worship. And, um, and we're going to be doing that now. We're going to pray those two lines, and then they're going to sing. As they sing, we invite you to come up to these tables and take communion. Remember the prayers that we're going to pray with this emphasis here in verses 12 and 13. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Declare the truth. Express the desire. Request the action. Let's pray and let's worship. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.